Good morning, people of God. You know, it's um, amazing to think every time we gather together that this service really is for the people of God to lift up the Lord and to exalt Him in our hearts. And, you know, it's, uh, it is is a real truth that sometimes can be forgotten is that the corporate gathering every Sunday is for the people of God. Uh, it, it's not for the unbeliever. It is for the people of God. And it's when unbelievers come into the corporate worship of the people of God that they are amazed at God's people lifting Him up in that way. And then unbelievers are drawn to see their need and to see the glory of God in Christ as the people of God worship. So it's amazing to be here with God's people, and it is humbling to address you this morning from His Word. Today, our study of the Sermon on the Mount takes us to a very well-known passage, one probably that you have heard in uh, many different ways and contexts, but it begins, do not judge, or in the ESV, judge not. So you can go ahead and go there. Matthew 7. Matthew 7. Do not judge or judge not. If there is one Bible passage in our culture that has been hijacked and misused, and there are many, but if there is one that we could point to and say, yes, that one has been hijacked and misused, it would be this one. It has been used to strip away Any moral judgments whatsoever, do not judge, means there are no moral judgments. You cannot make those, assert those. That is one of the ways this text has been hijacked. And ultimately, it has been used. It's amazing how the Bible can be used to uphold idolatry. It has been used to uphold the idol of tolerance. Tolerance of all sorts of things because you can't penetrate those sins or those actions or those heart dispositions or whatever. You can't penetrate that with judgment because this has been the prevailing cultural interpretation. So today we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about judging. Do not judge, judge not. What does Jesus have to say on this important topic that I think has been misused all throughout our culture. I was recently listening to John Piper in one of his Ask Pastor John episodes. And if you don't have that as an app on your phone, it's a great resource, something that you can go to for all sorts of of, of godly wisdom on a host of, of things facing the Christian. And in one of these episodes, he was describing, it's a recent one, maybe the last one, He was describing the destructive role of anger in relationships and particularly in marriage. The role of anger in relationships, how it destroys relationships and particularly the relationship between a husband and a wife. And I think we could go back even one step further and ask this question. How much of our anger comes from the judgment And criticism that we've had towards others. Think about this. Where does all of that anger, maybe in those most intimate relationships in our lives, come from? Does it not come from this mound of bitterness and resentment 
that we have created in our hearts through all of our judgmentalism and criticism. So how much of the anger problem that we might be able to point to in our marriages or our relationships with our kids or maybe within this church or anywhere else for that matter, how much of that really goes back to this problem of judging? A bitter heart that has been formed by picking people apart. Maybe that's you. Sizing them up. Thinking the very worst about them and their motives. Not believing all things or hoping all things or never rejoicing in wrongdoing as 1 Corinthians 13 says. But instead just looking for faults. Trying to find all the ways in which you can strip them of their dignity and put them underneath yourself. And how many of our relationship problems stem from this judgment? And criticism. Think about it. Right now, even in your own life, think about all the, think about the network of, of your relationships as a person, as an individual. How much have those relationships potentially been strained by judgmentalism and criticism in your own heart, flowing out from your heart towards other people? And how much anger, think about this. How much anger in other people has been provoked by your own judgmentalism and criticism? Maybe you relate to people sometimes and you tend to say, well, they're just being defensive or being sensitive in sort of coming out against you when you come at them. Maybe you've provoked them through incessant criticism and judging. How many disputes within the churches derive from The graceless, merciless, unloving ways that we sometimes view and speak about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just with our words, but the ways that we churn them over in our minds and all of their faults. How often we do this. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary uh, frequently notes how convicting the Sermon on the Mount is. That it really, I mean, like, like no other passage in the Bible, it really does force us to peel back all that pretension and all that superficial religiosity, that veneer of Christianity that we walk around with. It forces us to really peel all that back and get down deep into the heart. And what we find often there, as we saw with all of our pretensions and performances in prayer and fasting and giving, what we find there more often than not, I think, is a judgmental heart. So question. Who in this very church have you judged? Who in this very congregation are you actively in the process of judging? You think you've got them figured out? You've been able to get right to the heart of things. You've been able to isolate all their problems. And maybe you don't even know that you're doing it. Let the Lord Jesus speak into all of this this morning. Potentially heal some of our relationships. Make our church a a healthier, stronger church in that we love one another. This is one of the greatest obstacles, is it not? To loving one another. This judgment that we pass all so frequently. So let's look at what our Lord has to say on this topic of judging. Matthew 7. We've now entered into the last chapter of this series. uh, Chapters 5 to 7 in the Gospel of Matthew. And we now enter into a new portion. 
with this topic of judging. So Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, if you'll go ahead and go there if you haven't already in your Bibles, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for His Holy Scriptures. You know, this is the uh, 500th year anniversary of the posting of the 95 Theses by Martin Luther. And uh, one of the great truths of the Reformation is sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the authority for faith and practice. And so I hope that if that this period of time as we reflect on the Reformation will cause you to grow in your love and devotion for Scripture. Go and get a book on Scripture. Get a book on the doctrine of Scripture. What is, what is the Bible? What does it do? How should we look at it and think about it? How should we think about its, its preciousness, its holiness, its truthfulness, its inerrancy, its infallibility, all of the, its inspiration, all of those words that we use? We stand because this is the holy word of God. So let's read it. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck, the speck, that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the, the log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is God's word. You may be seated. We will go to him now in prayer and ask him to bless this time of instruction from his word that we will be hearers of the word first and then that we won't stop there, but we'll also be doers of the word. Our Holy Father, our great God, What a privilege it is to read from sacred scripture, to read that which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that which is truth, not just true, but it is truth. God, we praise you that you in your providential grace have exposed us to your Bible And that even now we come together and we get to look into it. God, may our hearts and minds be alert, vigilant. May we not be slothful in our listening, in our thinking, in our applying. Father, would you be merciful to us today? Would you apply these truths to our hearts? Would you heal us of sin? Would you extract it from us? Would you conform us into the image of your Son? Father, we are greatly needy. For the sake of your great name and your kingdom, would you do these things in us? Would you provide what we need today? Each of us comes with 
different concerns, different struggles, different blind spots. Father, would you just work, would light shine into every heart today, we ask, by your word. And Father, would you help us to truly confess and repent of our sins? Would you forgive us of our sins? And would you help us to see all the ways in which Satan, our enemy, that serpent of old, the liar, the murderer from the beginning, is deceiving us and scheming against us? Father, would you bring those things to light this morning, we pray. We know that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray that it will do its work as it divides and exposes and reveals the intentions of the heart this morning, God. We ask that, that your word will do that very thing. We know that apart from your spirit, none of this can take place. And so we ask that he will come now and fill us, be with us, and bless all that we do here today. We ask all of this in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. So the title for the sermon this morning is simply Judging. And I think Jesus asks us to consider four main things as we come to these six verses. They're hard verses, especially if you throw verse six in there and you're like, hold on a second. What's going on with this? Uh, It's not easy. And that's the case throughout the Sermon on the Mount. From a preaching perspective, and you probably thought this as you've just read the Sermon on the Mount. It's a lot of hard passages to kind of work through and interpret and understand what's going on. But I think that there are... Four main things in in this passage that Jesus is asking us to consider. And I think he's saying to each of us, to each of us, consider your judge, consider your sin, consider your usefulness, and consider your discernment. So let's go first to your judge. Jesus is telling us, Christian, and I think we could even say it more like this, critical Christian... Christian, insofar as you are critical, consider your judge. So what should you do when you find yourself tempted to judge someone else? Especially a fellow Christian, a brother, as we find in this passage. What should you do? We'll talk a little bit more in a moment about the nature of this judgment. Because I think Jesus fills it out for us what judgment looks like. What it is at its core and how it plays out. I think Jesus gives us that information in this passage. But what should we do when we find ourselves tempted to do this thing called judging? Well, look at verses 1 and 2 again, if you will. I think that's the beginning of the answer. Verses 1 and 2. Judge not. So there's the command. That's the focus here. That you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. These verses, as you will probably notice at this point, are very similar to what we've already seen in the Sermon on the Mount. We've seen it, in fact, in two places and hinted at in other places. But we saw this in the Beatitudes, chapter 5, verse 7, regarding mercy. So Jesus says, blessed are the merciful... For they shall receive mercy. And then in chapter 6 verse 14. He says something very similar with regard to forgiveness. He says for if you forgive others their trespasses. Your heavenly father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, one of the things that we constantly have to consider as we go through the Sermon on the Mount is that this passage of Scripture is for the Christian. This entire chunk of text is for the disciple of Jesus. It's for the one who is blessed. It's for the disciple we learned at the very beginning. His disciples came to him. We know that these are people who suffer for the sake of righteousness, who suffer for the sake of Christ. We know that these are people who can say, Abba, who can say, Our Father. So this is directed all the way through towards Christians. Now we've seen in our society how people have hijacked the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, some people have, have come along and said, you know, I don't, I don't like Paul. I don't like all of that doctrine stuff. Give me that raw, bare bones a sermon on the Mount. That's what I want. That just pure, nice way of life. The problem with that is that the Sermon on the Mount is not for society just to hold up and everybody follow this. The Sermon on the Mount gets at a righteousness that is in the heart. And that can only come as the Holy Spirit of God transforms the heart. So if you're here this morning, you're not a believer. You're not a Christian. You've never trusted Christ. You've never put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and been transformed, been converted. Hear the word of God this morning and turn from your sin and receive a new heart from God. Because only with the new heart are we able to live what we find in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not going to happen if you just put it up on the wall, tape up these things on the wall, and you try to live them out. You're going to become a Pharisee even more than you already are. What we need is a new heart. But these related passages that I just read, chapter 5, verse 7, and chapter 6, verse 14, about mercy and about forgiveness, these related passages help us to see that the judgment and measuring out that Jesus is referring to will come from God. So when he says in verses 1 and 2 that you be not judged... You will be judged in this way, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He is talking about the judgment of God on the Christian. We'll talk about that. Our judgment of others will be considered in his final judgment of us. All that judging, all that criticism... All that lack of grace and lack of mercy and lack of kindness and gentleness and sympathy. All that stripping away of someone's dignity and reducing them to the sin which you have found in them. The fault which you have found in them. All of that will be considered in God's judgment of you on the last day. But what kind of judgment are we talking about here? I mean, we don't tend to think. Judgment, Christian. Hold on a second. Those two words do not go together. In fact, Jesus says in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word. By the way, it's the same Jesus. Same Jesus. Who said this. Okay? So the same Jesus who said what I'm about to read said what I just read in Matthew 7, 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So what do we do with these? 
He does not come into judgment. Christian, you do not come into judgment. You've passed from death to life. Praise God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That crescendo, Romans 8, 1. So what do we do with these two truths? I think Martin Lloyd-Jones gives a clear and concise explanation of this. This is what he says. Maybe this is news to you. Maybe it's not news. Maybe you just haven't given enough thought to it. It has truly affected me this week as I've freshly thought about it. Christian believers will have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And there we shall be judged according to what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. This is not to determine our eternal destiny. It is not a judgment which decides whether we go to heaven or to hell. No, we have passed through that. Praise God. But it is a judgment which is going to affect our eternal destiny. Not by determining whether it is heaven or hell, but by deciding what happens to us in the realm of glory. And he goes on to say that this judgment of believers is very clearly and specifically taught in Scripture. Just to name a few places where we find it, I want to just give you a few that you can begin to meditate on and think about. And by the way, what more effective way uh, to wake up intentional in the morning to read something like this? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Think about putting that right, boom, right in your face when you wake up in the morning. Even before you turn your alarm clock off. That's Romans 14, 10 and verse 12. He's talking about Christians. He's saying, don't judge each other. Because each of us will stand before God. God's the judge. Who are you to judge the servant of another? God will do it. Each of us will have to stand before him one day. And give an account of the whole life. Every day. Everything. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 to 10. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Do you care about pleasing God? Or do you think because you're a Christian that that's it? I'm pleasing to God in Jesus. I have Christ's righteousness imputed to me. Of course I please God. Yes, in Christ we do. In Christ, we have everything. His righteousness is imputed to us. Union with Christ is the center of salvation. But how often are we told in the New Testament? Strive to please him. Do you want to please God? Do you desire to please him? Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Whether good or bad, he is talking as a Christian to Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you hear these words? 1 Corinthians 3 speaks of our works being tested by fire. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. And it is this judgment that Jesus is referring to here. So here's the startling truth that we need to consider as Christians this morning. How we treat people today 
how we treat people this very afternoon, this very moment, as you might be judging the person who said something to you before the service or who's sitting across the way from you. Even here, how we treat people today, even in our thoughts, isn't that amazing? Not just in what we say or what we do, but even in what we entertain in our thinking goes with us into eternity forever. That's incredible. If that does not give an incredible seriousness to sanctification and holiness and spiritual disciplines and pursuit of godliness, then I don't know what does. And in fact, throughout the New Testament, this is given as a motivation for pressing on. It's given at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 and it's connected to our resurrection. Don't lose heart in doing good. Don't stop doing good. So just a question before we go any further. Have you thought about this future judgment? Have you up to this point, has your theology had this as a part of it? That this will in fact happen. And that this should in fact change the way we think about how we live this Christian life. How much has this been a role in your own sanctification. And let me ask this other question. Whom do you now, before God, in this service, in your own heart, whom do you need to release from your critical eye? Right now. Do that. Repent and turn to God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So Christian... Before you judge, consider your judge, I think Jesus is saying. Consider your judge, and then he goes on to say, consider your sin. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 7. Consider your sin. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? And then the first part of verse 5, you have to include with this, you hypocrite. Isn't it amazing how straightforward Jesus is? Just, just, you know, we just need to stop and think about that for a moment. We tend to, tend to think about, you know, fluffy, comfy kind of uh, uh, ways of portraying and speaking the Christian gospel and Christian truth. Jesus is incredibly straightforward here. Stop sinning, Jesus will often say to his people. Do we hear that language from our Lord? Stop Sinning every person that Jesus went to in the New Testament, every person he goes, go and sin no more. Jesus hates sin. The grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions. We learned from Titus. These verses with this funny image help us to define what exactly Jesus is talking about when it comes to to judging. And I think he describes it from three angles. So here, in other words, I think we get a little bit more information about what he means when he says, 
Don't judge. What's he talking about? What is this behavior called judging? What is this conduct? What's the, if, if we were to sort of map it out and look at it, put it up on a board or turn it into a movie, what would it look like? And I think Jesus says three things about this judging. He says that it is hypercritical. He says that it is uncritical and that it is hypocritical. It's all three of these things. So let's look at each of these. First, the activity that Jesus is forbidding and rebuking in this passage is hypercritical towards others. There is a fixating on the minutia of other people's lives. A fixating on the minutia of other people's lives. A speck or a splinter of wood. This is the imagery. You have a speck or a splinter, a very, a very tiny piece of wood. There's all kinds of ways we could translate this into English, but it essentially means just a, 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 little, a little bit. As they would say in Scotland, bit, a little bit of something. This is what it is. Versus a log, a beam that you would use in the floor of a home or in a ceiling. A large piece of wood. A very obvious, conspicuous piece of wood compared to a little... A little bit that gets stuck in the eye. You need to get it out. That is a, an incredible, very humorous even contrast. And Jesus wants to make this very vivid for us. He wants to make our judging seem ridiculous. Just like he wants to make our worrying seem ridiculous. Because all sin is ridiculous. All sin is irrational. All sin is anti-human. It's anti-creation. It's wrong, it's perverted, it's twisted. So he gives us this image to bring that more and more vividly into our minds. So what is this? I think first of all, as I talk about hypercritical, it's putting people under a microscope. How many people do you put under a microscope in a day? Just think about the way we do this. We interact with people. And we begin to sort of really hone in on all their faults. And what is this? Becomes this. What's very tiny becomes very huge as we begin to mull over in our minds. I can't believe they're like that. I can't believe they do that. How much thinking of that kind of thing do we do? We may not even say it. But we think about it in our own hearts. So it's putting people under a microscope. It's offering a full assessment based on small details. I mean, how often do we look at a person's life... And there's something in their life that we, we are able to see is sinful or wrong. And all of a sudden, we have deduced from that one thing that this person is a total reprobate. I mean, think about it. That this person is totally wretched. And now in our minds, we've gone from this one little thing, which we personally don't happen to like very much and that has then become an entire assessment or an assessment of the entire person we've stripped them of their dignity we've reduced them to nothing with our criticism I think it's also elevating non-primary things or matters of conscience and using them to condemn others. I think we get this from Romans 14, 13. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. The issue in Romans 14 has to do with eating and observing days. 
And some Christians notice that other Christians are eating certain things that in their mind they shouldn't be eating or or not observing days that in their mind they should be observing. And Paul says to these Christians who are doing that, stop judging. And to the other Christians who are doing it frivolously and carelessly and stomping on the consciences of these Christians, he says to them, stop trampling on the ones for whom Christ died. It's to that first group that he says these words, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. He will say the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, which we looked at last time. Let me also describe it this way from John Stott. He says this, the censorious critic is a fault finder. Are you a fault finder? I think we all fall into this at times. A fault finder who is negative and destructive towards other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. Do you examine people? Kind of sit back and wait and watch to see if they're going to mess up. He puts the worst possible construction on their motives, pours cold water on their schemes, and is ungenerous towards their mistakes. That is what we're talking about here. A hypercritical person. Are you that way with your wife? Brother? Sister, are you that way with your husband? Are you that way with your children? With other people in this church. Second. So first this activity is hyper critical. Secondly this activity of judging. Is uncritical. Of self. Hypercritical of other people. While being uncritical. Of oneself. How many times. Have we criticized. Someone else's faults. While having the very same. Glaring fault in our own lives. I have seen this in my own heart and my own judging frequently. We, we go and we look at people, we, we sort of make our assessment and we judge them and we criticize them. And that still small voice of God, the Holy Spirit in us says, but what about you? What about your sin? What about your sin, Lonnie? You do the same thing, don't you? And that is what we do. One of the greatest examples of this is our pride. We are really quick sometimes to say that person's prideful. That person's prideful. That person's prideful. And part of the problem is that we ourselves are prideful. Prideful recognizes prideful. Because prideful doesn't like the asserting of one's own pride. Someone does not like For someone else to exalt themselves, not because they hate that person's pride, but because they love their own ego. How dark our hearts can be. I think we're also meant to consider that someone else's faults from our own perspective will always be, listen to this, will always be a speck when compared to our faults from God's perspective. Always. When we look at someone else's sin, their faults, their mistakes, whatever. That which we perceive 
however bad it may be in our eyes, is like the, the tiniest speck compared to our own sin in the eyes of a holy God. It is always a speck. It is always a speck when compared to our log before God who sent his son to carry that log on the cross. It's always a log. Thirdly, this kind of judging is hypocritical. It's hypercritical. It's uncritical. Hypercritical of others. Uncritical of self. And it is hypocritical at its core by nature. It speaks against something while simultaneously doing it. I see that sin in your life. Let me come over there and get that out of you. While simultaneously having that sin in your own heart. It is hypocritical because it is a form of acting or pretending. Acting as though in righteous indignation towards sin. You're going to root out sin in the world. You're going to go and attack that sin in that person's life. It's hypocrisy because while doing that. While, while pretending to be a fighter for righteousness. You yourself are mired in that very sin. That's what makes it. Hypocrisy. And this was, of course, the problem with the self-righteous Jews of Paul's day. And so he begins Romans 2 in this way. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. And here, he's talking to a Jew who would have read Romans 1 probably and said, Amen. Because Romans 1 is very much focused on the utter, despicable, disgusting, cruel, and idolatrous godlessness of the Gentiles. And so you get to 2 1. The Jews are clapping. They're really excited. They are like, yes! They are so wicked. And then he says, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, scribe, Pharisee, you, the judge, practice the very same things. He'll go on to say, ultimately in Romans 3, there is none righteous. No, not one. All are under sin, Jew and Greek alike. So this hypocrisy we saw, we see with the first century Jews as they're relating to the Gentiles. So when we start to judge, Jesus tells us here, I think, to consider our sin, making that the object of our fixating and our fixing. Not fixating on someone else's sin or trying to fix someone else's sin, but fixating on our own sins and trying to fix those by God's grace. So let me just put a little application out there for us. What if we started letting judgmental thoughts turn us inward? Here's a practical way we could do this. The moment, the moment we begin to, to meditate on the fault of another. The moment we begin to sort of kind of sit back and be judge over someone else's life or someone else's conduct or someone else's heart or someone else's motives or someone else's behavior, whatever it might be. The moment we begin to do that, we, we say in our minds, I'm going to take this very thing that I am focusing on in this person and I'm going to turn it around like a scalpel and I'm just going to do some serious surgery on my own heart right now. In other words, I'm going to change the direction of my thinking from the sins of that person to my own sin in my own heart. That's precisely what Jesus wants us to do. That's precisely 
what he asks us to do here. So Jesus says, consider your judge, consider your sin. And the thirdly, he says, consider your usefulness. The reason I have not called this sermon, do not judge, is because I think there is balance involved in how we think about judging. As Jesus presents it here in verses 1 to 6. Verses 1 to 6, the title for verses 1 to 6 is not, do not judge, period. You have to go a little bit further into it to see what is Jesus saying about judging, the nature of judging. We know from Jesus' words here that a certain amount of judgment is needed if we are to be helpful to our brothers and sisters. So look at verse 5. Can't do this without some measure of judgment. Just has to be conceived of differently than what we just saw. Verse 5. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The removal of sin from our brother or sister's life should matter to us. Think about it this way. You could walk away at this point and think, no more judging for me. And you become totally impotent as a Christian in the body of Christ. You become totally useless to your brothers and sisters. Because you're not going to be discerning. You're not going to to be uh, identifying at all. You're just going to shut down, be polite, and never notice sin in anyone else's life. That's not what Jesus is saying. The removal of sin from our brother or sister's life must matter to us. This is the same sort of helpful accountability that we find throughout the New Testament. So Galatians 6.1, for example. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you have to notice that they're in transgression. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Matthew 18.15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. We're not talking about blindness to sin here. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So what am I saying? It's the main thing I'm saying. Not judging does not equal, it's very clear here from Jesus' words, Not judging does not equal turning a blind eye to sin in the lives of other people. It can't mean that. But moving from what we've said so far, only the person who considers his own judge and his own sin will be in a position to rightly see into and help with the sins of others. In other words, you have to follow these verses logically through. The helpful, the truly helpful Christian is a person who, while dealing with the sin of another, is conscious in fear of God. That is a biblical idea. In fear of God that he will judge them one day as they're ministering regarding the sins of other people. Before the Lord doing that. Conscious of their own sinfulness. And then we can be useful. How many of us are bypassing this part? Think about it. How often do we bypass and we actually aren't useful at all? We're hurtful. We're hurtful and rough and harsh and unkind and all of these things. Because we don't see our judge and our sin as we deal with the sins of others. So why is this? 
Why is this that we need to deal with our own sin first? And the first of, the first of them is that, and Jesus says here, notice that Jesus says here that we will then see clearly. So the issue, it has to do with perception. We deal with our own sin first, and then we will see clearly in order to help that person with their own sin. So I think what we're to take from this is that sin obscures reality. It clouds our vision. And here's what happens. When we judge in this way, our assessment of that person is always inaccurate. It's always inaccurate. We inflate and misdiagnose because of our own passions. And I think the, the text that Will read for us earlier in James chapter 4, if you notice at the beginning of chapter 4, he starts out by saying, why are there fights and quarrels among you? Because of your sinful passions, he says. And then it's within that same train of thought that at the very end of that passage, he goes and talks about judging one another. So why do we ultimately judge one another? Because of our sinful, self-righteous, prideful, even envious passions. And so when we deal with these passions, then we are able to look on another person's sin and see it rightly. We're able to assess it rightly, clearly. We're able to diagnose it for what it is. It's not clouded by our own passions and our own tastes and our own preferences. It is a pure way of seeing. That's one reason I think that doing this in our own lives allows us to help our brother. But also, being gracious, merciful, and gentle comes out of receiving grace, mercy, and gentleness as God deals with our own sin. Now think about this. This is very important. We deal with the sin in our own lives before we go and deal with the sins of others. How do we deal with the sin in our own lives? Think about this. How do we deal with sin in our own heart? God's grace. His mercy. We don't just fix ourselves. We don't just rely on ourselves. We don't just uh, make sure we discipline ourselves. It's God's grace. Poor in spirit, we are told. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So we, in our poverty of spirit, confess our sins, repent of our sins, receive grace from God, mercy from God, compassion from God. He transforms us with his gentle, fatherly hand. And it's out of God's work on us in his grace that we then go out and do the very same thing. Our sin is dealt with graciously. We then go out and deal with sin graciously, i.e. we see clearly. So that we can help our brother. So seeing clearly means seeing without self in the way. It means seeing without hypocrisy that clouds our integrity. And it means seeing with compassion and grace. That's a helpful Christian. That is a church filled with those kinds of Christians. Will not be a church characterized by divisiveness and quarreling and anger and splitting But it will be a church that is characterized by that wonderful thing that Jesus said, they will know you by your love for one another. It will be a church that is characterized by the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, manifested in every heart, across every divide, and every difference. But Jesus goes on to cite another kind of positive judgment. This is where we'll finish up this morning. He says, consider your discernment. Consider... Your judge, your sin, your usefulness. And finally, he says, consider your discernment. This is where we'll finish up this morning. Look at verse 6. Chapter 7, verse 6. 
Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Well, just to let you know, Jesus is not talking about dogs and pigs. He's talking about people. Yes. So, we immediately are confronted with Jesus in one breath saying, don't judge anyone. And then Jesus immediately thereafter saying, those people are pigs. And those people are dogs. What do we we do with this? This This is what he's saying. Well, here... It becomes immediately clear that Jesus' definition of judging does not match that of our culture. You just have to scratch that. Clearly doesn't. And we've already encountered that because Jesus says you will be able to take the the sin out out of the other person. And so you'll be able to be useful to them. We've already seen the fact that this can't be used in the way our culture uses it. But here, even more, is that the case. With dogs and pigs... Jesus is portraying what is wild, vicious, and unclean. These are not house pets. You know, you're immediately thinking of your dog. (laughs) It's not what what, uh, Jesus has in mind. He has in mind scraggly scavenger mutts moving around Palestine just in the way, traveling in packs. These are wild dogs. Nothing cuddly and cute about these dogs. And we're not talking about Wilbur from Charlotte's Web. We talk about pigs. We're ta- Jesus is talking about probably wild boars that roamed around Palestine. And, and plus to the Jew, the pig was an unclean animal. It was a, an animal that returns. Uh, we'll also read, and Peter also mentions that dogs return to their own vomit. And pigs uh, wallow around in the mud. These are dirty, unclean portraits. And this is a way, as it is elsewhere... Of referring to unbelievers. Especially the kind that are described in Proverbs 9.8. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. There is a level of foolishness in our world called scoffer. There is a simple person. There is a fool. And there is a scoffer. You see this in Psalm 1. You see this throughout the Proverbs. A scoffer is a mocker. A scoffer is an antagonistic, God-hating man or woman. It's a person who hates God, hates the things of God, and tramples on those things. In light of Jesus' parable of the pearl of great price, this holy object and pearls probably refers to the good news of the kingdom of God itself. So here we are probably dealing with the very core thing that we think of. We are meant to get out everywhere. Bring the gospel everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. This pearl of great price, this holy thing, this great truth, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And yet, Jesus here makes a radical point. Some people are so viciously and vehemently antagonistic to God's truth that we are not even to tell them the good news. We are not even to go about Casting the wonderful, beautiful pearls of God before them. Because as they are, as they, the image here is of of a a wild boar receiving those, realizing they're not food, and turning around and attacking and trampling all over those beautiful, priceless pearls. Jesus is saying that there are some who are like this. So, of course, judgment and discernment are needed. 
And even in the most severe ways. And we also see this emphasis on discernment when it comes to the false prophets, which we'll read about here in just a moment in chapter 7 or soon as we continue through his Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. If Jesus is saying, don't have any discrimination, don't have any discernment, don't have any judgment whatsoever, then how in the world are you going to recognize the fruitlessness of ravenous wolf-like false prophets? Jesus says, you must discern, you must judge, you must recognize. So what is Jesus' message to us with regard to judging as we finish this morning? Be wise, discerning, and useful, but never forget your own judge and your own sin. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for how you sanctify us by means of your word. How it just cuts us at the heart. Oh God, thank you for holy surgery on the heart. Thank you for just exposing us that we might be more like you. God, we worship you that you are such a kindly father that you would discipline us as you tell us in Hebrews that your very discipline is a sign of your love. Thank you, God, that you give us discipline, that you correct us and reprove us and train us in righteousness. And this text does just that, Father. So we pray that we will be reproved, that we will be corrected, And trained in righteousness. And that the love of Christ Jesus would flow out of us as a result of this surgical procedure of the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for your word. Would we meditate on it this week? Would you bless the discussion of your word in gospel community groups? Would you be with us this week and provide for our needs? And would you protect us from the evil one? We ask your blessings on our church, Father. Above all, we pray that we will be a healthy church filled with your word and filled with your love. That we will worship you and edify each other. And God, that you will chase away, even today, all judgmentalism and criticism and sanctify us beyond these things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.